Colloquium, Episode 4, Point of No Return, Christos Gage on Absolution. Welcome to the fourth episode of Colloquium. My name is Marcusan, and this is my comics creator interview podcast for Sequart. Last week, I had the pleasure of talking with writer Christos Gage. Christos has written for popular TV shows such as Law & Order SVU and Numbers, but we know him best for his work in comics on series like Avengers Academy, Justice League Beyond 2.0, and one of my favorite comics of the past few years, Angel and Faith. Christos has a standalone story coming up in The Flash number 26, and he's written the first Superior Spider-Man annual, which comes out in November. He's also working on a new graphic novel with his wife called The Lion of Rora. For this cast, Christos and I focused on Absolution, his creator-owned superhero series published by Avatar Press. The second five-issue miniseries, Absolution Rubicon, is currently on the stands. I talked to Christos about how his protagonist, John Dusk, becomes a killer, the effects of PTSD on police officers, the parallels between absolution and Breaking Bad, and how to get inspired by rubbing a cat's belly. Hello? Hey, Christos. Hey, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Except good. We, have this, uh, we have this big truck outside. Apparently, uh, somebody put baby wipes in the toilet and Uh it's clogged our whole building's pipe system oh no (laughs) but other than that i'm doing great (laughs) (laughs) uh thanks for taking the time to uh, talk about absolution christos appreciate it my pleasure thanks for talking yeah i mean the new series uh, absolution rubicon is currently one of my favorite superhero comic books uh but i thought we'd uh, go back a bit to the first series um, for people who might not be familiar with the world of Absolution, how would you describe the overall premise of it? Well, um, Absolution takes place in a world where superhumans are part of the police force, uh, or I should say superheroes. They're criminals, uh, but the good guys, as it were, pretty much work for the, the police or the military. And the superpowers are fairly scaled down. I mean, there aren't, you know, any Magnetos or Supermans in this world. They're, you know, they're a little more ground level um and um essentially absolution concerns john dusk who is a veteran new york uh uh officer uh who's been through some difficult stuff probably suffering from ptsd and he encounters uh far too many bad guys who the law can't touch for one reason or another so he starts taking it on himself to kill them so he essentially uh you know becomes judge jury and executioner secretly and in the meantime his girlfriend who's also a, a police detective although a, a normal human uh is investigating his crimes and uh you know it all sort of spirals from there mm-hmm. now i've read that the concept for the book first came about because your wife mentioned the southern courtroom defense that some people just need killing <laughs> yes <she> <laughs> so can you talk about that and how uh that led to the idea yeah, well, I had um, encountered uh, William Christensen, the publisher of Avatar Press, and he said, I really like to do something with you. You know, can you give me an idea for a superhero book? That's the sort of thing Marvel and DC, you know, wouldn't do because obviously there's no point in doing exactly the sort of thing they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was talking it over with Ruth and she said, what about a superhero serial killer? I said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, you know, someone who just kills people who need killing. <laughs> I said, well. <laughs> How do you define that? And, you know, that's kind of the story. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she had a lot to do. Ruth and I co-write, uh, a lot together a lot. We've worked on Law and Order SVU together, many other, all our screenwriting projects. And we're actually working on a graphic novel together now for oh, Oni Press. Um, it's called Line of Aurora and it's a big historical epic like Braveheart. Um, so, uh, anyway, so 
she she yeah she sort of pretty much came up with the idea um the and i sort of you know went with it and in many ways not not always but in some ways based uh the character of john dusk on her because she's someone who has a very keen sense of injustice and when she sees someone getting away with something it really bothers her um so i sort of took that a step further with the character of john dusk and you're not like that well, you know, I don't like it when someone gets away with something, but at the same time, I'm sort of like, you know, like if we're watching the news and it'll talk about somebody who, you know, got away with, I don't know, got away with murder or whatever, you know, I'll be like, well, that's terrible. And then I'll go on about my day, you know, because it, mm-hmm. it's not something that is directly affecting me and I, uh, not much I can do about it. So I sort of let it go and Ruth just gets really, really, really upset, like can't sleep and, you know, just just it really eats away at her so uh you know that's the difference between us wow maybe you shouldn't watch the news every day well we actually have gotten to the point where we don't uh we we watch a lot less news because it all seems to be so upsetting well i mean it's all directed towards the negative it seems like you don't see a lot of positive things on the news exactly (laughs) well i've also read that a friend of yours who had been a cop helped put the concept in perspective. Uh, what did he tell you about his experiences as a police officer that helped with the book? Yeah, uh, his name is Ed McMullen, and he runs a horror website called theoamante.com. And uh, we were just talking, and he mentioned that when he got out of the Navy, he used he had been a cop for a while. And I said, oh, you know, what made you do that? And he said, well, you know, I have a lot of cops in my family, and it seemed like a logical progression from the Navy. And I said, well, why'd you quit? And he said, well, you know, he said, I, I kept getting called out to the same places night after night, you know, and there'd be some guy beating up his wife. And then by the time I'd get there, she'd say, no, no, everything's fine. You know, and then this guy would be verbally abusing me and I'd have to call him, sir. And I'd think to myself, you know, one of these nights I'm going to come back here and he's going to have killed this woman and maybe their kids and, or somebody else. And, you know, he said, I, I just realized that, you know, there, there's just too many people who the world would be better off without. And he said, if I, if I didn't quit, I was afraid I'd get to the point where I'd start, <laughs> you know, removing them from the world. So I thought that was really interesting and mm-hmm. that played into it. Well, one of the things I really like about Absolution is the way that you take your time to show how John Dusk is affected by all the horrible things he's witnessed over mm-hmm. the years. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem like it's one event that causes him to start killing. It's really the cumulative effect. I mean, when we first meet him, he's had, he has trouble sleeping, mm-hmm. has headaches. He sees the victims of violence, all signs of PTSD, as you mentioned uh, in the beginning. So aside from um, your friend, did you have any conversations with uh, other officers who are currently on the job? Or did you do any research on how people deal with uh, tragedies on an ongoing well, basis? It, it did have to do with, you know, like I said, Ruth and I worked on Law and Order SVU, and um, those stories are often used real cases as a starting point. And you get, when you work on the show, you get these big books of actual cases that might be, uh, you know, useful in coming up with uh, story ideas. And you, obviously, you do research into what it's like to be a, SVU cop and that sort of thing. And quite often sex crimes and special victims officers are rotated out of that division after a couple of years. And the reason for that is the crimes that they investigate, which are often sexual in nature and, and or involve children are so upsetting that anyone who does it for longer than that often, you know, has severe mental and emotional problems resulting. Hmm. Uh, and I thought that it would be interesting, you know, well, what if you can't leave? What if you're not replaceable because you're one of a very small percentage of people with superhuman powers? So that's one of the things that's established early on in Absolution is that he, you know, John Dusk is involved in a the killing of a, a suspect, a justified sort of self-defense type of situation. And his boss says to him, you know, well, if you were a, uh, regular cop you'd be on administrative leave while this is investigated because that's standard operating procedure but we can't replace you so get on back out there and that was my thinking is okay what if there's this person whose skill set is such that he cannot be replaced and he's having to encounter these sorts of horrible situations time after time after time 
what does that do to a person? And I figured that in a cumulative sense, it would be really debilitating. So that's where that came from. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. I, I remember that scene. Um, but what about the other side of it, which would be that, yes, everyone suffers PTSD if you go through that. But if a superhuman does, <laughs> the chances of uh, the devastation of what they can do if they go rogue is worse. That's exactly right. I mean, it's bad enough if you've got someone with a gun and a badge. We've seen situations where uh, you know soldiers who come home from war and have PTSD take their own lives or those of others. Uh, and, you know, if you take, if you go to the next level and say, what if this person has superhuman powers? It's really scary. And even when that person is, has good intentions and is saying, okay, I'm only going to go after the bad guys. Well, who's deciding who the bad guys are? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously if you are killing child molesters and murderers and that sort of thing, no one's going to, I mean, people will argue with how you do it, but no one's going to argue that those people are not deserving. But what if it's a situation where, you know, let's say somebody commits vehicular manslaughter. They drove drunk and killed somebody, and due to a technicality, they got off. Well, obviously that person should be punished. Should they be killed? What if they're really remorseful? What if they plan to dedicate the rest of their lives to working against drunk driving or to helping victims of drug driving accidents or whatever, you know, it, it, you get into a lot more of a gray area. And mm-hmm. that's it why it depends have, on the individual. Pretty much. Yeah. And, and that's why we have the system we have where it's designed in such a way that no one individual gets to make life and death choices about anybody else, you know, obviously, except in the cases of self-defense or things like that, but in terms of our justice system. So I think that our system, which is predicated on the notion that it's better for an, a guilty person to go free than for an innocent person to go to jail um, is, you know, is a good one. And probably, you know, it's like Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. So, you know, in, in, a, dark, in a deeper sense, it's really an exploration of what is justice and what happens to someone when they decide to make themselves the ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about uh, John Dusk is that he is in law enforcement, and he seems like a man who believes in the law. He he seems to believe he's doing the right thing for all these years before that switch in him flips. So how does that experience make him different from other vigilantes who do use lethal force, like, say, the Punisher? Yeah, well, the Punisher pretty much has – I mean, for the Punisher, it's really – he's not a representative of that system, at least – I mean, he was a soldier, but he's not, you know, he's not a representative of the system that he's decided is ineffective. Mm-hmm. Whereas John Dusk is actually, at least in the first series, is actually working as a police officer. And I would say he does believe in the system. He doesn't think it's, you know, hopelessly corrupt or, or flawed or anything like that. But he thinks that there are times when it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And he appoints himself as the person who he finally comes around to the viewpoint that it is worse to let these people continue to walk the earth than it is to undermine the system he's sworn to uphold by killing them. Right. Uh, when he does decide to kill, it seems like it puts him in a very precarious situation because not only is he going against what he believed in, but he has to try and keep it a secret from his friends on the force and his mm-hmm. girlfriend, Karen, mm-hmm. who just so happens to be a homicide detective, which you mentioned. Right. Um, but it almost feels like he's trading one form of stress for another one. Uh, he is, but it works for him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he feels like he's finally doing something about it. Like he's finally sort of making a difference, as it were. Uh, and part of it is really the notion that, I mean, in a larger sense, in a worldwide sense, is he making a difference? Probably not, but it's making him feel better. Uh, <laughs> so I think it's really part of the problem for him is he's just felt helpless in so many ways and now he feels like he's taking control of the situation and that begs the question obviously breaking bad was on last night and i saw it yeah and and the question you know that whole series walter white talks about how he's doing what he's doing for his family but at many crucial points he makes decisions that at the end of the day are going to be harmful for his family or put his family at great risk 
which he rationalizes by saying, I need more money for them. But at what point, you know, at one point, at one point he's got something like, you know, $200 million or whatever. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you have to realize that Walter White is doing this for himself because he likes being Heisenberg. And it's a similar idea with John Dusk. At what point is he doing this for the benefit of society? And at what point is he doing it because it makes him feel better and powerful and effective? Right. I mean, you make a point that it feels good to him when he starts killing. He's like, this actually, you know, I'm, I'm not dreaming anymore. I'm not having these nightmares. He gets a high off of it. Right. right. Um, and, it, and it introduces this doubt, at least in my mind, I'm sure in other readers' minds, about how noble his motivations are. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I could, I can see where he's coming from in the beginning. But when he admits that he actually enjoys it, you know, it really does straddle that gray area. Um, because... Even if he wanted to try to take it back and return to who he was, it doesn't seem like he can do that. Yeah, it is one of those things where once you do it, it you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, as it were. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, when he says he enjoys it and he, he I, I don't think it's a situation where he enjoys the blood or the violence or the inflicting pain. What I think it, what I think he enjoys is the feeling of, there are wrongs in the world and I have the power to put them right. A very basic sort of feeling of I can control my world, which none of us really can. That he felt powerless and then he did something and had power again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, let's talk about his power set a little bit. He has some very interesting abilities. He can mentally create an aura to defend himself or other people and he can use it to form edged weapons or to uh, move about the city. Um, did the fact that he kills a shitload of people factor into the kind of abilities you wanted him to have? How did the ideas for his powers come about? I wanted it to be something that was fairly versatile, but also in a sense that he could use it to misdirect the people investigating him. So for example, it couldn't just be, let's say fire because if you find a dozen burned up bodies, then you're going to say, well, someone's setting them all on fire. <laughs> I wonder who that is. <laughs> the nature of his power set is such that he can make one victim look like they were shot in the head by, you know, narrowing the beam to a bullet size and plunging it through the guy's head. Mm-hmm. And then he can make it look like another victim was killed in a knife fight between rival drug dealers. So that was one of the considerations there. And I, I've seen people describe his powers as like green lantern and there is some similarity but it's a much less green lantern let's say can create i don't know a truck (laughs) that works (laughs) out of his power ring Uh and john does it's not quite that it's sort of if you've got like silly putty and you can shape it into any number of things but this silly putty can have more substance than actual silly putty that's a really horrible example but it's a bit like that so he's not going to be able to make let's say a rocket ship out of his aura, but he can kind of make shapes. He can, uh, you know, turn into a, like a, a hammer or a, a club or a blade, like you said, an edged weapon. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, there is a, a parallel to green lantern, but it's a much different, like I said, my, one of my goals in this world is to make superpowers more scaled down and less omnipotent. Right. There's not really a character who could, you know, destroy the whole world, a Superman type character. Right. Um, the series takes place in a world where superheroes are a sanctioned branch of law enforcement mm-hmm. and they're subject to regulations of the job. So fitting superheroes into real systems, that's something you've explored before. What do you enjoy about associating superhumans within um, real structures? Well, there's a couple of things. One, it provides a certain grounding that I think is is good. I mean, you're not you're not dealing with a, a Harry Potter world, which is, I love those books, but you know, in the Harry Potter books, there is an entire magic world that is not the one we live in, and and that's the fun of it. But in the in a lot of these cases, the of the books I write, I want it to be grounded. And then there's also the fact that if you have a system and then you introduce this element, this X factor of of superpowers. Um, you can sort of explore the, I mean, all great sci-fi is a commentary on our actual world. So if you've got our world, but then there's certain people in them who can do amazing things, then you can explore our world without 
I mean, once you get to a certain point, you are no longer in our world. You're altering the world. You're in the Marvel or DC universe where there are alien races and time travel and future tech and beings from parallel dimensions coming in and super soldiers from the 40s active today. And, you know, that's all great. I'm not uh, demeaning the legitimacy of that. Obviously, I love writing in that world as well. But I think if you're especially if you're looking at issues like PTSD and the justice system that are firmly grounded in our world, I think you need a certain level of grounding to tell that story properly. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned that uh, you uh, talked to Avatar and that's how you got the book made. Um, which it seems like it's the perfect place to publish a book like this, given that they specialize in violent, edgy superhero books. Can you talk a little bit more about how um, that started? Yeah, it was actually, I was at a convention here in L.A. that Avatar was set up at, and I had seen in the program book that Avatar was there with Jason Burroughs, who's an artist I, I really like, and I wanted to get a sketch from him. So I went to the table to get a sketch, and William was there. And he saw my name tag and he said, oh, I was going to come up to you at this show and see if you wanted to do a book for us. So that was a nice surprise. And uh, we talked a little bit and we talked about the fact that, you know, it's important to I mean, it's interesting because I did quite a bit of work for Wildstorm, had a really good time with that. Uh, mm -hmm. But now they've sort of been folded into the DC universe. And I think when you look at Wildstorm's superhero universe that was so successful for so long, what it did was it did things with superheroes that Marvel and DC wouldn't or couldn't do. And then there came a point where Marvel and DC said, okay, now we can do those things. And in fact, they hired a lot of the people like Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch to do the exact same things they'd done at Wildstorm, right. but with their characters. And once that happened, there was really no reason for the Wildstorm universe as a separate entity to go on uh, because it wasn't providing something. I mean, taking oh you know i'm I'm not looking at the fact that you may love this character or that character but I, it just in a larger meta sense what is it providing that that marvel and dc aren't and the answer is at this point no, no nothing but with avatar there there's always a certain like marvel and dc aren't going to suddenly start doing with certain exceptions like marvel max they're not going to start doing r-rated uh you know, superhero stories. It's just not what they do. There are many mm -hmm. sound business reasons not to do that. It's not what they're interested in doing. And Avatar is interested in doing that. So you can do things, you know, that are edgier, more horror oriented, more adult oriented cursing. And then there's just things that some things that are a little controversial that Marvel and DC don't necessarily want to explore. Like for example, one of the characters in absolution, uh, the servant is a devout Christian and, I figure if there were real superheroes in real life, some a lot of them would probably wear their religion on their sleeve, you know, like Tim Tebow, uh, various athletes. Uh, most athletes, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. So, and Marvel and DC don't necessarily want to do that, I believe, because, I mean, this is just my theory, but it's because they don't want to be seen as, you know, like, why would you want to exclude people by saying, well, this character is... I mean, it's one thing to say this character is a Christian, but when that is the defining characteristic of them, you start running into things like, well, is this company proselytizing? Are they pushing one religion over others? Mm -hmm. You know, and that could be that could alienate people. And there's just, you know, there's there's certain considerations that come with being a big company like that. And I totally understand why they don't want to do that. But it's something that I thought it would be worth exploring. And Avatar gives you a chance to do that. Um, I mean, people think a lot about. Well, you can do sex and violence, and that is true. Uh, but there's also other things you can do, that being one of them. So, well, yeah, I mean, that's something that just contributes more to the realism of the series. Yeah. As far as I know, Avatar doesn't place any editorial restrictions on their creators. Do no, you? they don't. Okay. I mean, you know, as William told me that he told Alan Moore, you know, Alan Moore said, so there's no restrictions whatsoever. And he said, well, there's things that would get me arrested. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, there's that, but other than that, not really, no. <laughs> so what is it like to uh, be able to just write your story and not have to deal with that? I mean, I know there's pros to actually having editors sometimes, but... Yeah, it, it's great. It's, it's you know, a lot of freedom, and it encourages you to think in such a way as to say, okay, if there are really no restrictions, then what what can I do? What are the barriers that I've put on myself that I now no longer have to worry about? 
And I think that it's very easy and in some ways the lazy route to say, okay, we can get really, really violent or we can show penises or, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there are times when that's appropriate, but then there, you know, to do it for its own sake is just kind of exploitative and, you know, to me, not that interesting. So I think what, what, where you really take advantage of something like that is to say, okay, what sort of concepts and ideas can I explore that I might not be able to somewhere else. So then you get things like, you know, Jonathan Hickman and and Mike Costa are putting out a book called God is Dead, which is about mythological gods like Zeus coming back to Earth and acting like they do in the myths, which is to say being extremely violent and and horny and treating and killing people left and right. Uh, So I think, for example, that's a a good uh, and interesting you know, use of the avatar freedom. And then there's obviously there's Uber, which is Karen Gillan's uh, alternate World War II book in which the Nazis discover a way to give superpowers to their soldiers. And, uh, you know, we've seen that before in various fictions, but this is a really sort of gritty and violent, you know, war, warts and all type of situation. So I think it is a lot of people think, oh, that must be great. It's so easy to go in and have no restrictions. And it's really not what's easy is to go in and say, we're going to have lots of boobs and lots of blood. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, I think the appropriate way to approach it is to say, what isn't being done and what have I not let myself do mm-hmm. and then go there. Is absolution boobless? I, I don't remember any. Uh, no, there's there. boobs in it. There are, um, you know, but it's been in a, you know, Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm just realizing this now. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's usually in the context of extreme violence. Like, you know, there's a, a victim uh, there. There's a character called White Power who's like a white supremacist guy. And he has kidnapped um, this woman and has, you know, obviously been abusing her and raping her and doing horrible things. And I think we see her boobs. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want there to be sex only in the context of violence, unfortunately. But that's just how it's worked out. So. <laughs> Well, you mentioned you had the freedom to do a character like the servant, but you also have a lot of other supporting characters in the book. Uh, the technocrat, urban mm-hmm. legend, um, alpha bitch, clusterfuck, um, mm-hmm. and fan favorite happy kitty. Yes. So can you talk uh, about these characters and, and what they uh, bring to the series? Sure, yeah. Uh, with happy kitty, I wanted to sort of take, you know, I mean, what do you, what would you call, you know, Hello Kitty, that sort of whole genre of stuff. But what I wanted to do is, you know, you hear a lot, as we just heard again with the Navy Yard shootings, where one of the reactions is, oh, it's violent video games have messed up, you know, messed people up. So I was like, okay, what if this is a, ch- uh, uh, she's a child, she's like 19, but what if this is an individual who literally has been shaped by video games and hmm. she looks at assassination and life and this will be explored more in the Happy Kitty origin special that's coming out in a few months, uh, drawn by Paul Duffield, who designed and co-created the character. That's a one-shot? It's a Yeah, it's a one-shot. Okay. And I believe it's just been solicited. I think it's coming out in December. Great. Uh, and so I don't want to give away too much, but basically, yeah, this is a character who looks at the world as a video game, and she's got the power to do it. And uh, it's, you know, so that that's sort of where that came from. Um, with Alpha, I wanted to take a... a female character and have her act in sort of very traditionally male ways like she swears like a sailor and you know she's she's really strong she's the strongest character there is and she has a degree of invulnerability uh and i thought that was kind of fun but without trying to make her a you know quote-unquote man with boobs you know not just acting like a man i mean she's a, a wife and a mother and you know just very nice salt of the earth kind of person with technocrat he was sort of uh almost like you know, what if Iron Man was a bad guy, as it were. Um, and then with the urban legend, that's one of my uh, what if Batman was real riffs that I like to return to from time to time. I actually did it with Batman in a recent Legends of the Dark Knight story where he gets uh, hit by Scarecrow's fear gas and wakes up in this world where he's, you know, a few years older and his body is debilitated and he's got Parkinson's like symptoms because you know, let's face it, we all love Batman, but the reality of the situation is when you look at football players who exist in a very structured environment and still come away with often very debilitating effects of what they do, 
you know, someone who actually did what Batman did would be like Mickey Rourke and the wrestler, you know, they would be <laughs> totally messed up. <laughs> yeah. And they so, kind of did that in the dark Knight rises, although not well, I didn't think, but right. Well, there's only so far you can take it without undermining the entire premise of Batman, which you don't want to do with Batman, um, but you could do it with someone else. So, <laughs> <laughs> and how about uh, the clusterfuck character? I just thought he was fun. I thought what kind of a power set, can you do that you probably couldn't get away with it at Marvel and DC. And (laughs) I figured a guy who can literally disassemble his body into its component parts is kind of cool. Something we haven't seen before because it's super gross and uh, (laughs) it was fun. And I just thought of giving him a kind of a devil may care attitude. You know, what's interesting is I I remember an episode of angel where there was a character who could kind of take his body parts out and use them. And you wrote angel and faith last season so yeah you know i vaguely remember that in the show interesting but i hadn't at the time i conceived uh clusterfuck i had not seen the show angel so yeah i figure it's a completely different character i just thought it was an interesting uh parallel yeah well i'm told that the origin for happy kitty actually came about because you talk to your cat when you rub its belly is that <laughs> true yeah uh we have two cats and uh sadly one of them has passed away we just got a a kitten uh so now we once again have two cats uh, sorry but, to hear that christo thank you yeah it's, it was pretty rough it was pretty rough we he was 13 and uh he was like our child and it, you know you, you they're they're really part of the family yeah um but you know i, they, I know they, i mean i have i'm a cat lover too and my mm-hmm. cat just turned 18 yesterday oh my gosh wow congratulations thanks yeah it's it's um uh, i know dan slot just lost one of his he was about that age and uh you know it's rough but on the flip side, you're taking loving care of them for their entire life, which is a good thing. So, um, anyway, I, you know, my cats sit with me and <laughs> I would rub their belly and they, they like it. And I'd say, who's a happy kitty. And that's kind of where the name came from. So mm-hmm. the least badass origin story ever. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I really liked in the first uh, chapter of absolution is, um, the servant's conversation with John about absolution. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I was actually worried about that because I'm not religious, but I thought you did that really, really well. Um, can you talk about that concept about John wanting to be forgiven for the things that he's done, even though he believes in what he's doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just it. He, he, he doesn't really, he wanted to be forgiven for his actions indirectly causing the death of Alpha's husband and kidnapping of, her kids uh he he saw the ramifications of that he he felt he had done something wrong by creating that situation which basically came about because the technocrat found out what he was doing and blackmailed him into doing you know killing his criminal rivals in exchange for not exposing him and he realized that he'd been selfish and put his own ability to continue doing what he was doing over the safety of others and he wanted to be forgiven for that but the point he kept making to the servant was that he didn't want to be forgiven for killing bad guys because he didn't think it was wrong uh, and that he felt that the he was actually performing a service and that each bad guy he killed would no longer prey on others and you know it's a, it's a, just a really tough thing because you look at especially sexual predators there's evidence that they just cannot be rehabilitated you know uh and so you just ask yourself, well, what do you do in that situation? Do you keep them locked up forever? Uh, you know, I mean, in a perfect mm-hmm. world, you'd be able to have some sort of facility where you could do that, but money is not infinite. And, uh, but you know, there's so many cases where somebody will get out after having been incarcerated for 20 or 30 years and they just go right out and do it again. And, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, an 18 year old who gets convicted of statutory rape because his girlfriend was 16 and, you know, He's got to be a sexual predator for the rest of his life. That's not just I'm talking about the sort of people who are actually get gratification from molesting children or committing violence, sexually based violence against people. And that's, a, you know, that's a hell of a thing. So, you know, John Dusk's attitude is these people need to be killed. They just need killing. So, <laughs> right. Uh, well, let's talk about uh, Absolution Rubicon. So you're uh, three issues into the sequel, which takes place fairly soon after the events of the first series. So when you were finishing up the first book, did you know that you were going to be doing a sequel? Did you have one planned? I actually did have a plan in mind, and I've got a, I've actually got a trilogy in mind. So uh, if the if the current series sells well, 
then maybe we can do the third one. But it, it is designed in such a way that it could conclude on its own. Uh, but basically, I went to the next level, which is what happens after John Dusk is found out and he's just out in the world doing his thing. And the other thing I wanted to do is introduce a um, arch enemy, you know, the polymath who is a guy who sort of evolves defenses to anything he encounters. So you might be able to beat him once, but you'll never be able to beat him that way again. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to set him up against John Dusk. But also what's going on in the meantime is John Dusk is taking, he's sort of planting his flag in this one neighborhood. And he's saying, okay, the rest of the world can go to hell, but I am going to, I can't protect everybody, but I can protect this neighborhood and I can protect the people in it. And he's sort of, you know, taking a stand and I'm exploring how the others react to that, how he reacts to it, how the polymath reacts to it. Is Mm -hmm. John endangering these people by declaring that he's protecting them? Um, Is it worth the risk? And what is it like to essentially declare yourself, you know, emperor neighborhood? <laughs> so that's all sort of wrapped up in there. Well, yeah, that's interesting because I just read issue three last night, and um, it actually made me think of the show The Wire. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've watched that or not, but because um, it kind of touches on facets of the city being mired in crime, and you mentioned that John is now taking on this neighborhood, like he's planted his flag. But, you know, over the course of the series, you seem to you've shown corruption, you've shown the issues with the justice system. And in that issue, you show, you know, the effects of a a poor neighborhood that's been overrun by crime and kind of forgotten by the police. So I thought that was a really good choice because you, again, call into question whether or not what John is doing is right. There's almost like layers you're building in with it because. In the very beginning, he kills people. You can kind of understand it. Then mm-hmm. he says that, you know, it feels good for him to do it. Oh, maybe what he's doing isn't right. Now you introduce the polymath, who I'm sure we'll get into after this, but who is this supervillain? And it's like, wow, you need John to take this guy out. Yeah. And now also you have this whole community that's hurting and he decides that he's going to help them. Um, but he's also doing it because he wants to draw the polymath out. Right. So as a reader, it seems like every decision he makes straddles this line between good and evil. And, and you're not quite sure what side you want to be on, you know, if you think that John is good or not. I think you're you're doing that pretty well. Well, thanks. And that's that's definitely intentional. You know, you don't want it to be. I, I don't want ever, anyone to get completely comfortable with him. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think that that is reflective of life. I mean, there's no. You know, what, well, what do you do? Do you just look out for your family? Well, then what about the rest of the world? Don't you have responsibility to your community? Maybe you should donate money and time to your community. Well, but if you are, then you're taking that money away from your, your family. And what mm-hmm. if you drop dead tomorrow? You know, so it, it's, I mean, it's just people make choices and, uh, you know, they have consequences. And the older you get, the more you become aware of that. So, I mean, obviously this is a much larger, uh, you know, canvas to be, <laughs> to be working on as it were. Right. But, uh, yeah, I wanted there to be a lot of that. It was interesting because I remember when I first started, started watching Breaking Bad and I had a real problem with the fact that, you know, and I should probably say spoiler alert if you've never seen it, but we're talking season one mm-hmm. where Walter White has this friend, uh, this couple who are friends who offer to, and they're rich and they offer to pay for his medical bills. And he refuses out of pride. And I remember saying to my wife, gosh, I, I'm, you know, people say this is such a great show, but I'm having a real hard time, uh, rooting for this guy because he's doing this illegal thing when there's a perfectly legitimate way he could solve this problem. And I've now come to realize that that was necessary because the whole, you know, Walter White couldn't get to where he is, which is re- you realizing that he's doing this for himself. I mean, it's sort of a foreshadowing of, of, all that's in there. So, I mean, John Dusk is far from a perfect person. I want to make it clear that he's flawed, but I don't think he's a bad guy, uh, mm-hmm. but he's not a purely good guy either. So that, that's all very, you know, that's all very intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting with Breaking Bad because I agree with you on that. And he's doing stuff for himself, but it's like multiple motivations. The same thing with John Dusk. He doesn't always foresee what the consequences are going to be of every action. You know, he just weighs yeah. it, uh, as it is, as opposed yeah. to what may come. 
Mm-hmm. And he can't see everything that's going to possibly happen. No, but I mean, there's a certain level of, uh, <laughs> you know, of risk involved in drug manufacture and dealing. Oh, yeah. And I think you can see that something bad may result from that. So in to put your pride above the welfare, I mean, I understand why he doesn't want to take money from these people, but to put your pride above the welfare of your family and, you know, to say, well, it's preferable to. Well, remember, though, Christos, he also was dying when he's doing this. So he didn't think he was going to be around. He just wanted to make money as fast as he could. And and I, I get that. And I get that, too. And I agree with that. And I was rooting for him, you know, for that reason. Uh, but then, like I said, and it's brilliantly done. You know, there comes a point where he's got money. He's got two hundred million dollars or whatever it was. Right. He had it all in a story, you know, or wherever he had it. I can't even remember under the house. Um, and he's continuing to do it. And the, the question, like early on, he comes up with a number of what will be, what does he need to reach? Cause he mm-hmm. thinks he's imminently dying. And he tells Jesse and it's like $700,000 and he way exceeds that. So, uh, when he does, that's when I think it's inescapable that he's doing it for himself. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant too, because at that point, when he starts doing that, he knows he's not dying anymore. You feel like, wow, I just conquered cancer. Now I can just keep doing whatever I want. I'm untouchable. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. And uh, again, it's interesting because we were talking about uh, power. And it's, you know, when you get, I mean, I, I knock on wood, I've never had cancer. Uh, my wife has had thyroid cancer. Uh, and she, it, she, they caught it very early. And I believe, you know, God willing, everything is, is okay now. But uh there is nothing more powerless than that type of situation. And so, again, Walter White is very understandable because he is able to – he can't control his own body, but he can control the world around him to an extent. And I think that as things spiral out of his control, you know, it, that's why it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think that there's a lot of that with John Dusk as well. I, I don't think he's like Walter White. I think he's a – better person um you know in that his he's he really does want to benefit the world and and uh mm-hmm. all of that but at the same time there is a question of to what extent are you you know what is the way to do the most good and is what you're doing that or are you doing something that makes you feel better mm-hmm. no he is different i think because you know he was part of the police force and he was already doing good like yeah. he wanted to do better. Whereas Walter White, he didn't seem satisfied with his life. You know, he had that whole partnership that fell through. And so he mm-hmm. never became as successful as he wanted. He didn't feel like he had accomplished everything he wanted to do. Yeah. And so when he gets into the drugs, and yes, he sets a goal, but then when he doesn't have cancer anymore and he feels more powerful, he wants to try to accomplish something on the Heisenberg level. Right. Yeah. And and he's the best. He gets satisfaction out of being the best, best. At, at what he does. Like Wolverine. <laughs> um, and the fact that no one, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, you're you're the best at this and no one can do it as well. And people like the product. And, you know, there there's a certain professional satisfaction in it, which is, you know, uh, which I think he would probably feel the same way if it was, uh, you know, manufacturing smartphones. I don't think he needs it to be meth or anything illegal, no. which I think is, you know, interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, back to absolution, though, uh, Rubicon means the point of no return, which makes it sound pretty dire. So mm-hmm. what does the title for the series mean to you? Why did you decide to choose that? Uh, because, and I think enough issues have come out that I can say, it, he, he crosses the point of no return when he, or he sort of draws a line in the sand, as it were, when he, he, he plants his flag in this neighborhood and he says, this is where I'm going to institute my way of doing things i'm the sheriff in this neighborhood and it's my neighborhood and here we do things my way Mm -hmm. uh and i think there's no really turning back from that it's it's basically like saying i'm not doing things your way anymore i'm doing things my way and if you cross me there will be consequences and uh you know that that's kind of what it is there's no turning back well, with the sequel, it definitely seems like you've turned things up a notch uh, because you've created this badass supervillain named the Polymath, who we talked about a little bit earlier. 
what went into creating a character uh, like the polymath and, and why did you decide to have this big bad in the new series because in the first series you didn't really have that john dusk was really yeah the focus well i wanted there to be i wanted to there to be someone who is contrasting to john dusk in that they are just pure evil i mean the polymath is somebody who is so godlike in his power. I mean, by the time we encounter him, you know, obviously people have tried to kill him in any number of different ways and he survived it and he can levitate and he can, uh, I don't know if he can or not, but he can, he can, he can, he's more or less invulnerable. Um, he's super strong and all this other stuff. And I basically wanted him to be the contrast. You know, he's so godlike. He feels like he can do whatever he wants and get away with it. And he feels all other beings are beneath him and can be used accordingly and it's it's in essence it's kind of an extrapolation of john dusk but without the moral underpinning that john dusk has but it can also be seen as a cautionary tale in that i mean obviously the polymath is crazy and, and sadistic but if you if you are using the fact that you have more power than others to make you know to do what to exert your will upon them you know, is that wrong in and of itself or is it, does it depend on your motivation? So, mm -hmm. um, and I, of course I wanted there to be a strong challenge for John Dusk. I definitely did, but the, the actual conception of the character was meant in many ways to be a dark mirror image and warning, uh, you know, cautionary tale as it were. Plus that issue too is just fantastic. The battle. I love oh, that yeah, one. Thanks. That, that was fun. I mean, I think, that we have seen, and it's funny because it came out around the time that the Superman movie did, and there was a lot of talk about, well, you know, you don't see any people dying in the buildings when they're fighting in Metropolis, but you, mm -hmm. there have to have been in there. They, there have to have been people in there. What's going on? And one of the things I thought that has was done effectively by Alan Moore and Warren Ellis and some of the others is showing the effects of a superhero battle, you know, like in Miracle Man or The Authority. Oh, 15, Miracle Man 15. Yeah, yeah. Miracle Man 15, uh, we, uh, an awesome issue. And they just showed the fact that a, a battle of this magnitude would just kill tons of people. Like, I remember, you know, reading Fantastic Four 25 and 26 in reprints where the thing fights the Hulk, and it's this great, great story, one of my favorites of all time. But Stanley kept throwing in things like, oh, luckily we ended up in a warehouse district, you know, where there aren't any people around, or these buildings <laughs> are all condemned. Right. You know? Because there are so many properties in Manhattan that no one's using. Um, so, I mean, and of course that had to be done because it was the 60s and there was the comics code. And, you know, let's face it, I don't want to read Marvel comics in which the thing is fighting the Hulk and thousands of people are being brutally killed. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to see that. But this was a way, you know, this was a, a way to explore that, you know, in a, in a different way. Um, yeah. I like that you have the big battle, but you also spend a lot of time on the smaller scenes with characters. Like I really enjoyed the scenes with Alpha Bitch and Karen who are both trying to meet new men mm -hmm. and it doesn't go well for either of them. Yeah. The um, speed dating. Mm -hmm. Are we going to see more of their personal lives? Will we see them confront John? Is that something you have planned? Uh, you, there, there aren't going to be too many more like small scale scenes in the remainder of the series, but we will, there will be, You'll see Karen confront John, and uh, if there's another series, we will see more of that, because I think that's all important mm -hmm. as well. But the way things have escalated to this point in Rubicon, you know, there's not – at the very end, there's some downtime, but uh, there's not a ton of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also really liked that the first issue of Rubicon starts where all the killers that John helped put away are basically petitioning for new trials because John is now a killer. Mm -hmm. um, which seems very grounded in realism. Um, it feels like, and we talked about this earlier, a repercussion of John's actions that he didn't right. really anticipate. Right. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why you decided to do that? Well, I thought it's what would happen. You know, I mean, immediately people would start saying, hey, you know, this guy put me away and he's a criminal and I deserve a mistrial. And this was funny because it was a case where I was going to actually have that running throughout the series. But then it's a case of the characters telling you what they're going to do because I asked myself, well, how would John Dusk react to that? And I was like, oh, he'd just kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we have in the first issue. He, This one guy gets out because of that reason, and John Dusk kills him, and word gets out. And all of a sudden, all the other ones decide they kind of like to stay in prison. So uh, yeah, it was kind of funny. It was, you know, People always say, well, do your characters – 
ever get away from you and, and take on a life of their own. And that was definitely a case where that happened. Mm-hmm. Well, something we haven't really talked about yet is the art. Uh, I thought that um, Vyakova, is it uh, Vyakova? No, Vyakova. Okay. His art in the first series was pretty good, but I'm really enjoying uh, Daniel Geet's work on Rubicon. How did that uh, working relationship come about? Yeah, I mean, I, I only know so much of, of uh, you know, the ins and outs of Williams' uh, interactions with because a lot of his artists are overseas, and I know he deals with sort of reps uh, and agencies that, that handle them. So I don't know the ins and outs of that, but I know that, I mean, I liked uh, Roberto's art on the first series a great deal. He did some great composition and stuff, but I also think that Daniel's art on this series is perfect for it in that it's this series, Rubicon, is a, you know, larger scale, much more, um, that's the word I'm looking for, you know, in-your-face kind of brutal action and... uh Daniel has a, a terrific, you know, realistic style that I think brings it all, you know, makes it all work really well. I mean, makes you feel like when this the polymath and, and John Dusk are fighting and the neighborhood's crumbling around them that it's really happening. So mm-hmm. I, I'm I've just been really happy throughout the throughout the uh both volumes of the series with the art. And of course it's great to have the happy kitty special that Paul Duffield drew the, the whole issue for, um, you know, a lot of people will know Paul from his work on Warren Ellis's freak angels. I and, love that book. Yes. And so that was, that was terrific having that. So, you know, I mean, I can't complain. I've been, I've just been really lucky the whole way. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us anything about the happy kitty one shot without really giving it it's, away? It's sort of her origin story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about all I can say. It takes place in Japan and, uh, you know, Paul does some great, great work on it. And, uh, I think, I think fans of the character will dig it. All right, great. Well, before I let you go, you know, what, uh, can readers expect in the last couple issues of, uh, Rubicon? A big showdown with the polymath and what comes after. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I really uh, enjoyed talking with you, Christo. Thanks very much. Uh, Likewise. Looking forward to uh, finishing off this series and awesome. uh, seeing what comes next. Thanks Appreciate a lot. It. All right. Take care. Thank Take you. Take care. Bye. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Colloquium with Christos Gage. You can find out more about Christos and his upcoming projects on Twitter. His handle is at Christos Gage. For more about Colloquium, visit the Sequart Research and Literacy Organization website at sequart.org. Along with the cast, you'll find reviews, documentaries, scholarly articles, and many unique books that discuss and analyze your favorite comic book series and creators. Big thank you to John Rafano, who wrote and performed the Colloquium theme song. John is the guitarist for the post-rock metal band Sonnet. You can listen to the band's first full-length album, Known Flood, at sonnet.bandcamp.com. Until next time, chums.